Hey there, this is Jay Akunzo, author of the book, Break the Wheel, Question Best Practices, Hone Your Intuition, and Do Your Best Work. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast, the best podcast on the planet, in my estimation, with the funniest host, probably most handsome too. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now on with the show. Joining us today on the Marketing Book Podcast is Jay Akunzo to talk about his new book, Break the Wheel. Question best practices, hone your intuition, and do your best work. Jay Akunzo travels the world as a public speaker and writer, and he is the host of the Unthinkable podcast. He's a former digital media strategist at Google, head of content at HubSpot, and vice president of brand at the venture capital firm NextView. And interesting fact, he and his wife are the proud parents of an eight-week-old daughter, their first. Jay, congratulations on Break the Wheel, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas, and uh, I appreciate the nod to my daughter. And before we recorded, you said something about how you can no longer talk about writing a book as birthing a child. <laughs> I used to say that. Like People are like, what's it like to write a book? And I've always wanted to write a book. And uh, I used to say, well, it's kind of like birthing something into the world. I feel like you know, it's like a, a child. And I imagine when I write multiple books, it'll, I'll be like, you know, proud of all of them equally. Uh, and then I actually had a daughter uh, end of November. So that analogy is no longer relevant. And I can no longer say it, especially in front of my wife. Yeah. Uh, don't get that wrong. Yeah, that's uh, that's very good. So Jay, wonderful book. I enjoyed reading it. I, it was uh, well worth the wait. I've been excited. I've been hearing about it for quite a while. And it did something to me that uh, is one of my least favorite things. And that is that it made me think. <laughs> Damn you, Akunzo. So, but anyway, let's let's get started. I want to read this uh, one excerpt. Unfortunately, vetting ideas or advice is not something most of us have been taught to do. It's not something we spend much time doing either, especially when you consider how much time we put in learning from experts, looking for shortcuts, or even tinkering with the latest trends or tools. Rarely do we stop to wonder if we're making the best possible decisions for our specific situations. By the end of this book... That's what you'll be able to do. As we embark on this journey together, unlike most advice books, 
We're not looking to learn what it takes for anyone to do their best work. Instead, we'll focus on a much more important question. How can you start doing yours? So, Jay, as I was reading this book, I ordered some Death Wish coffee, and I'm, it's going to arrive today, and I'm going to have it and here in the office, and we're going to uh, toast you. But explain why Death Wish coffee was in your book. <laughs> I appreciate that passage. That was, I distinctly remember even where I was sitting in a coffee shop, speaking of coffee, writing that chapter and that passage in particular. Uh, so thank you for plucking that one out. That, that one's meaningful for me. So Death Wish Coffee is this brand that I use to open the book. And uh, without giving the entire story away, the reason it opens the book is here is the story of this guy, Mike Brown, who started a coffee shop with this same intent that a lot of us have when we start doing anything. It could be a company, a project, a new quarter. He wanted to get his best results and he wanted to do so, you know, not by becoming derivative of everyone else and just copying them, but by doing something different. And he completely tanked his business. So a couple examples, he sold 200 types of candy at a single location coffee shop, uh, which is ridiculous. He sold 25 types of coffee, uh, which I don't like, I think I can maybe name three types of coffee. (laughs) And I'm a pretty avid coffee drinker. But he was doing things that on the letter of the law seemed like they would matter for his business. Many of them were trends in coffee or advice he'd gotten from others. He just stitched together all these best practices, all this conventional thinking, and then all these new trends. And that's a cycle that I think is really familiar to a lot of us is we get trapped in that cycle and we're looking to do our best work and, and then we go seeking our answers kind of out there. you know. And, and, and to me, that's a poor way to make decisions because you miss some key variables about your own specific context when you do that, when you make decisions based on what works in general or what works on average. Um, but the story of Mike Brown is one of sort of putting that that stuff aside. He started questioning all the general advice and he went internal and he started looking at his own context, himself and his team, his customers, and then his resources, the three parts of your context. And he really started investigating what the heck he could learn from those three things and then apply that to his work. Because make no mistake, I, I think finding best practices has been misconstrued as the goal in business, but it's not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is And as that passage states, we've never been taught how to do that. So Mike Brown's story shows us how. And and lo and behold, today he has this thriving e-commerce business called Death Wish Coffee. It's the strongest coffee in the world. He's run a Super Bowl ad. He sent his coffee into space to the International Space Station. So now they joke they're not the world's strongest. They're the galaxy's strongest. And the reason he's so successful has nothing to do with any best practice or trend he dug up. It has everything to do with the fact that he stopped acting like an expert who cares about absolutes, and he started acting like an investigator who just asked really good questions in his own specific context. Mm -hmm. So this book, you have basically, it's a declaration of war, Jay Akunzo. It's a declaration of war on best practices. And that's why it really got me thinking, because it made me a little uncomfortable. Because as I was reading through it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I've been so guilty of this along the way, certain aspects. And because you worked at HubSpot, I'll mention this, uh, years ago when our agency got into the, the HubSpot fold, the, the warm embrace of the HubSpot <laughs> partner program, you know, they were doing it. There was a, it's a great partner program and they were doing everything they could to help uh, agencies that were new to that software and, and trying to, to help them. And I was looking at some of the, 
best practices and things that they had recommended, and I'm afraid I embraced them a little too much and didn't learn. I later did, but I learned, I, I didn't know to make them ours. So uh, I was, uh, one day years ago, some prospect was looking at our site and we spoke and she said, yeah, I looked at your site and you all seem very HubSpotty. And so I was sort of busted, and it's when I started to realize, well, yeah, and a matter of fact, a couple of these things, you know, uh, work. most of it works really well, but there's a few things that we need to do to do differently, and that's where this, this all came back to me. But let me ask you, what are the ways, uh, maybe, maybe I was guilty of them as well, what, what are the ways that people find best practices? How do they get lulled into best practices? Yeah, and just to address the, the HubSpot thing for a second, there's a reason I no longer work there, right? It's I don't believe that there's one way or best practices or tips and tricks. I, I believe that those things really get us right to average. And it's never been easier to be average because if you don't have an idea or an answer, you can just go scoop up somebody else's. Um, but the problem is so can everybody else. So we're we're all retreating to the mean or the average. And so this book explores well, what does it take to do something exceptional. Um, and I think when, you, when you're looking at that first section of your work, how do you get to average, we, we go about making these decisions by finding best practices in one of three different ways. I think number one is, and I found actually like psychological phenomena that describe this stuff. So number one is we have something called Pike syndrome. Mm-hmm. Which is a feeling of helplessness. Uh, there's learned, a learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. Yeah, it's not something you're explain, born with. Explain the pike and the and yeah, the Yeah, it's a really cool story. So there's I an saw experiment. Myself, that, I saw myself uh, <laughs> in that story. Oh my gosh, you're not alone. I, I I'm right there with you. I feel like uh, a lot of us can relate to this. So the let me explain the the concept first, and then I'll explain why it's named Pike syndrome. So <laughs> so Pike syndrome is is learned helplessness. That's the more colloquial term for it. And it's basically the reason we don't think that we can provide the answer or the insight and we have to go look for an expert or a precedent or a trend. And so learned helplessness, again, is the phrase. But the reason it's called Pike syndrome to me was such a delightful story to learn about when I was researching for the book. So uh, there's an experiment that scientists have run to study this con- uh, concept of learned helplessness. Imagine a pike is swimming around a tank and then into that tank you drop some minnows. Uh, what will happen is, as you'd assume, the pike will eat those minnows right away unless you lower those minnows in surrounded by some glass, in which case the pike can't see the glass. And so he just starts smashing against it. And he'll do this in an insane amount of minutes, like up to a couple of hours, the scientists found, until the pike then concludes for himself, I can't eat minnows. And then the craziest of things happen, which is you can remove the glass and the minnows can swim freely right in front of the pike and he won't attack them. And so he's learned this feeling of helplessness. And the analogy here is just like there's tasty little morsels swimming in front of his nose and he doesn't move an inch. There's tasty little details, tasty little nuggets of insight swimming in front of us every day Mm -hmm. when we interact with our teams, we talk to our customers, I hope, and when we think about the resources at our disposal. In other words, our context is swirling all around us at all times, but we set that aside and we feel like the right answer is somewhere out there because we live in this era of infinite, quote unquote, right answers. So that's the first way we make decisions. We're making it from a place of helplessness that we've learned, you know, and we've learned it since we were in school when we were told there's a right and a wrong answer. And for some reason, Pike syndrome, we go approaching complex and creative tasks in our work with the same idea that, oh, I got to find the right answer. No, no, no. You have to find the right approach for you. 
which is going to be different necessarily in some way compared to the expert or the past or some trend. So Pike syndrome, huge problem in the business world and marketers in particular, I think, fall victim to that quite often. Oh, yeah. And the uh, other ways that people are finding these best practices? Yes. So this one is going to hit home in a, a pretty, I think, deep way for marketers who are especially on the front lines, let's say, of social media. Um, but I think it affects all marketers in general. So this is called the foraging choice. There's a study out of NYU uh, published actually in 2018, very recent, that talks about this idea that many of our decisions in the workplace mimic an animal foraging, where you have to make this decision between exploiting your existing position or exploring other and often unexplored possibilities. So that's the the high stress conditions that we operate in. Do you cling to what you know works now or what somebody else that you admire says just works? Again, using lots of air quotes here. <laughs> or do you go and act like an investigator and try to seek out something new? Um, and I mentioned social media because I think that's what we do when the algorithms change. When, when someone says, hey, LinkedIn rewards walk and talk advice videos or one line at a time blog posts, we might not stop to think, why or if this matters to us because we're so scared that the algorithm will change again because we've been burned before or we're too focused on the algorithm instead of the audience itself that we're just going to try to cling to an existing position something that feels known and exploit the hell out of it right mm -hmm. the old phrase that marketers ruin stuff yes yeah. because we exploit stuff and, and so the foraging choice speaks to this issue and uh, there was a third one the third one is called cultural fluency, which is perhaps the most hidden way that we make decisions. There's a psychologist out of Chicago, Jim Mori, who studies this, and I talked to him for the book. But cultural fluency is your behavior when the world unfolds according to the expected norm. So if things feel rote or routine, which very often happens in the workplace, you tend to just go with the flow. You don't stop to say, why are we doing this again? Or does this make sense? Or has the context changed and we need to learn and update what we do? Mm -hmm. You just kind of repeat old patterns. Um, I mentioned Jim Mori because the way he studied it to me was just like Pike syndrome was a really delightful way oh, to learn the about picnics? science. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the punchline here is if you ever get invited to this guy's picnic, just say no. So... <laughs> Because he, he, he experiments on his family and friends, and he looked at um, – he was at a 4th of July picnic, I think, for his, his at his mother's house. And he broke the, the buffet line into two groups. One group got festive plates, and one group got white plates. And then he measured how much food they took uh, at the end of the buffet line. And the group with festive 4th of July plates – Like they had like American flags on them and – Yeah, yeah. They looked like a holiday plate. Mm-hmm. And he found out that these people that had the holiday plate took more food because it's culturally fluent to gorge yourself on the fourth. Mm -hmm. Right. And then he kept running these experiments at different picnics and changing up the types of plates. And, and what he found was, you know, we, we often snap into a mindless rut in many common scenarios, whether it's life or work. And that forces us into kind of repeat behavior. So we're pulling from the past and just going with the flow but something in our context has changed. So, so he encourages us to obviously be more mindful when we do that. Um, I talk a lot of, in the book about the importance of asking good open-ended questions. That's a way to become mindful because you're like admitting to yourself, well, I actually don't have the answer. I can't just go with the flow. So I have to be mindful of that fact and start looking for updated information in my context. Like, for example, the, the, uh, the customer has changed or my customer is slightly different than yours. Mm -hmm. So, Jay, I'm the only person who has never watched Game of Thrones 
although I know a lot about it. I know it's enormously popular. But with that in mind, explain the wheel metaphor uh, that is the title of the book. Yeah, so it does come from Game of Thrones. In the show, it's basically an analogy I use at the end of chapter one, but in the show, one of the heroes, Daenerys Targaryen, the mother of dragons, is going to fly over the ocean on her dragons and save the kingdom of Westeros from these really terrible ruling class families that just keep warring and replacing each other for the throne. And she says, you know, first one is on top, then another, and on and on this wheel spins. She says all these families are just spokes on a wheel. And so there's good news and bad news for us, Douglas. So the good news is we don't live in the Game of Thrones world, which is great because it's very murdery. Murdery, yes. (laughs) I loved that word in the book. (laughs) The bad news is... I think that's all these best practices and trends are. They're just spokes on a wheel. In other words, one is on top, then another, then another, and on and on the wheel spins. And I think we're faced with a really crucial choice that we often don't make well as marketers. You know, we can cling to the conventional spoke, but then we get crushed as the world turns. So we can keep reaching out to every new trend, every new spoke as the wheel turns, but then we never firmly grasp anything in our work. And quite often, we'll just release the wheel and devolve into chaos. You know, we make decisions based on no plan at all, just hopping between tactics. Mm-hmm. And so just like with Daenerys Targaryen in, in the show, she says she's not going to stop this wheel. She's going to break it. I think we don't need to figure out the best practice, the new trend, the conventional playbook. I think we need to step out of this cycle entirely. We need to smash that wheel to bits. And instead of clinging to conventional thinking, we have to learn how to think for ourselves. And It really is kind of a declaration of war, I guess. I hesitate to be that aggressive with the language. But what I'm trying to do in the book is give people not a list of steps, because then I'm a hypocrite, but a list of questions that they can ask to do exactly that. Yes. I recently interviewed uh, Bob Hoffman again, and uh, he he calls BS on all aspects of marketing and, and advertising. He's the ad contrarian. And I once saw him at a a conference. He was a keynoter there. And for the day he spoke, everyone there was very uh, self-conscious about not having any BS. Don't, don't talk about BS. Don't, you know, <laughs> suppress it. And then the next day he was gone. And the joke was, okay, now we can get back to what we were doing. So with your book, this is what the, the effect had. In other words, it, it did help to rewire my, my marketing brain a bit there where it's this idea of best practices. I'm actually more sensitized to that. And I'm, it's like I'm momentarily pausing now when I think about it because of my own context. So tell me what you did to me, Jay Akunzo. So <laughs> this idea of the, of the context, talk about how we can sort of develop our own context muscles or awareness so that we're able to maybe take a few things from learning from some best practices, but then put it through our own contextual filter. Well, let's continue with another metaphor. I used the wheel one earlier. And I have to speak in like 75% metaphors because I have an English degree. So mm-hmm. that's how I get a return on my degree, I think. <laughs> and I know that uh, pleases your parents. Of course. So um, I think of it as if you could somehow set up a, a decision-making filter around your own brain or your collective team's decision-making. Um, and into that filter, you can press your ideas. You can press a guru you admire, an expert you admire. You can press the insights of an author, um, the old playbook that you run at your company. You basically dump all this information of the information age through this filter. What comes out the other side is what you should do. uh, And what gets stuck is what you should ignore, even if what you're ignoring seems completely smart and sound. 
And I think that's a big struggle is a lot of marketers are really good at marketing, marketing knowledge to other marketers on their marketing blogs. <laughs> and it's like, who do you listen to? You know, I have a long form newsletter that's doing really well. Other people I know have a short form newsletter that's doing really well. So which do you do? Mm -hmm. Or it's uh, how long should videos be? <laughs> or right. what's, what's the best time to post on Twitter? I think that was in your book as well. Yeah, I, that, those questions make me want to start flipping tables because it's like, it, let me give you all the reasons I can't answer that because I don't know your specific context. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, you can do an, there's a two hour long podcast called Hardcore History, which kills it. It's beloved and widely listened to. Oh, uh, yeah, I, know. I listen to that. So it's two hours. Then there's 10 minute episodes that I can't stand. Right. Like we binge Netflix shows across hours and hours of our weekend. <laughs> and yet we have to create like snackable again with the air quotes here yeah. content as marketers. Right. Like mm -hmm. th there's there's too much absolutism happening in the marketing world. And so the way we can look at better decision making is to start with your context, build a baseline knowledge of your context first. And we do all possess a skill. It's just that we shy away from this skill because of the misconceptions around it. That skill is called your intuition. Mm hmm. And lest I lose half your listeners when I use that word, all intuition is, if you look at the Latin root of the word intuere, it just means to consider. Mm -hmm. That's it, to consider. We need to get better at considering the world around us. You know, we, we laud all these visionaries in business, but I think all they do, you know, they don't see the future. They just see the world in front of them with more clarity. And so in the book, I try to turn intuition into a practical skill, a sort of like instant clarity generator that we can use. Mm -hmm. uh, and by putting together the right order of six different questions that you can ask of your context, it's sort of a two by three model, two questions a piece of the three parts of your context. I think that's how you hone your intuition. And when you make decisions at first, maybe you have to pause and say, well, let's ask these questions. But over time, you just move faster. You're like, I don't have to list out every one of these questions. I just start to operate this way. I start to look critically and consider more thoughtfully the environment I'm in instead of pluck out some list of tips and tricks that I apply blindly to my work. Right. Well, let's talk about those questions. Let's let's start with, um, and, and this helps with trusting your intuition. Um, talk about the trigger question, confirmation question. Let's Let's, let's unpack that as the podcasters say. Sure. <laughs> I love it. I got the bag right here. So if you consider what we're doing here is changing our behavior from acting like experts who think about absolutes in theory or what works in general to acting like investigators who are really good at finding clues and asking questions firsthand. That's the change. Now it's like, okay, well, what do you ask the question of your context? Well, what is your context? It's just three things. It's you, which is the person or people doing the work. It's your customer, your audience, the boss or client you're pitching. It's, it's the people receiving the work. Then it's your resources, which is your means to make the work happen. So how do you investigate those three things to form that baseline knowledge to then make good decisions? Well, I think we have to ask two types of questions. One I call a trigger question, which just sparks your investigation. It's open-ended. The most rudimentary of these questions is why. Right? We hear that all the time. Ask why more often. Now, I get more specific in the book about what specific open-ended questions you might want to try, but any open-ended question necessarily admits, well, I don't have the answer in some theory. I got to go find it. I got to go investigate. But you also don't want to run off the rails. So then you can pair that trigger question with a confirmation question, which ensures you've actually gathered evidence as an investigator. So these two types of questions work in tandem. So if it's, uh, I'm going to investigate, let's say, myself and my team, you might start by asking, what is my aspirational anchor? 
Like, what are we trying to do here? Us, not in general, not just drive results. It might be, let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. Great. Okay. That's your aspirational anchor. Well, the confirmation question is then, well, what's our unfair advantage for reaching that aspiration? If we're going to show the world how fun we are, but we're really boring people, <laughs> maybe that's actually not good. Maybe it doesn't pair quite so nicely. But if I can confirm by looking at our team or looking at our work or looking at their side projects or their chatter in Slack, hey, you, you guys are actually really sarcastic and we're not using that in our marketing. Okay, let's actually use it, right? So you have a trigger question that sparks the investigation and a confirmation question that ensures you're actually on the right path even if that path doesn't mirror what an expert says you should do. Right. So give the example from the, the dictionary marketer. Yeah. So Merriam-Webster Dictionary, one of my favorite stories in marketing over the last few years. Lisa Schneider is an excellent, whip-smart chief digital officer for Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. And when she started at the dictionary, they were posting the same boring stuff on Twitter every day. But internally, they weren't boring at all. She noticed that her team was really smart and very clever when they talk to each other internally. And she said, look, enough is enough. We can't continue down this path, even though this is the best practice to automate and schedule things based on the data. Like we need to show the world how fun and relevant we really are. Mm -hmm. So that's what she said to her team. And their first chance to do that was uh, <laughs> they were talking on Slack about whether or not the hot dog was a sandwich. Mm -hmm. Very controversial. So, very controversial and very crucial American question, I would say. Um, let me put it to you, Douglas. Is the hot dog a sandwich, yes or no, in your estimation? Yes. You're the, really? Is it a sandwich? Well, no, I, I would I would have said no, it's some other animal, but after uh, reading the book... Uh, you have the, yeah, you have the, the yeah, curse so of knowledge, I, I guess. Yes, yeah. that's right. Thank, uh, thanks. Thanks, Akonzo. <laughs> so they define it, if you look at the definition of a sandwich in Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, a hot dog does roll up to say it is a sandwich. Now, they said that internally they were debating it but lisa was like look we're, we're trying to show the world how fun and relevant we are not just automate our way our voice here let's put that out there so they wrote a blog post around memorial day weekend and uh when they said the hot dog is a sandwich predictably because it's the internet everybody lost their mind of course right they did. everybody had an opinion and most people were anti some people were for but when they were really for this opinion and uh they got press coverage from that tweet like they noticed that oh my gosh actually using who we are which is the biggest variable in our work that a best practice has not considered who we are, like that's our unfair advantage. So in the case of Merriam-Webster, they stopped automating. They stopped just scheduling the same boring crap, even though that seems to be a convention. They started deploying their tone of voice and who they are. And uh, not just with the hot dog is a sandwich, but they came up with other types of tweets, emoji threads, like using emojis to define words. They did a collaboration with the um, LA County Museum of Art, where they like sent back and forth images of artwork described as dictionary words and vice versa. Like they'd lob it back and forth on Twitter. They became one of the most beloved and viral sensations on social media. And it had nothing to do with any kind of sneaky hack or new trend, or technology. It had everything to do with they actually started deploying their self-awareness. And it's a, so it's a heartwarming story, but it's also a revealing one because it shows us that oftentimes we ignore who is doing the work in favor of looking out there. Again, that Pike syndrome. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they stopped doing that, all of a sudden things got better. It didn't happen overnight, but slowly by slowly, bit by bit, they became this amazing brand. And now here we are again trying to analyze what, what can we copy? You know, it's not be sarcastic. 
That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying be funny like them. I'm not saying do your own version of emoji threads. You're not saying don't be them. Right. I'm saying be you and also have a system for how to be you. Like it's good pithy advice, but how do you actually deploy your self-awareness? That's what I wanted to dig in in the book. Yeah. Well, let's talk about man buns. And by that, I mean Scott Stratton. Well, he's so popular keynote speaker. A lot of people in marketing know him, author. Uh, he's been on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. He starts every speech now by saying, uh, should I address the man bun now or after the talk? <laughs> right. right. Like, so, so Scott is somebody who, you know, we're living through this now with the ad we saw from Gillette and the ad uh, last year from Nike and Colin Kaepernick, where people are debating whether or not you should be divisive. And I don't think the object is ever to be divisive. But when you are actually executing on what you believe and who you are, necessarily those beliefs or your story to the world will bifurcate people. Some people will ignore you or get pushed away, which is fine. You don't want to clutter your system with garbage in because that yields garbage out. But then some people will run sprinting into your corner and be such visceral fans of yours. And so when I talked to Scott, he told me about, you know, he has a man bun, he has a beard, he wears like a black polo shirt, jeans and boots. The guy looks like a blacksmith. Lots of tattoos. Yeah, he's got lots of tattoos. He, he doesn't look like a business keynote speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I'm really using a lot of air quotes over here. It's really a problem. You know, we, you can hear my hear my voice there. Business keynote speaker, we, but we can see him. Good, that's good. That's the Italian tone of voice coming through. Um, <laughs> but, we'll talk you know, about Scott, New Haven Pizza later. Oh yeah, we should. <laughs> but I think the beauty of Scott's story is that you know, even though he told this story for for my on my podcast that I used in the book about. Uh, this woman for ahead of one of his really like first big break keynote speeches looked him up and down right before the speech and was like, can you go change? <laughs> right. And it's like, there was this guy on stage at this insurance event bombing and Scott was wearing black, his usual attire, black polo boots, whatever. He got a standing ovation. And afterwards I loved it. He handed the microphone to this woman. He was like, do you still need to, do I still need a tie? Um, yeah, but it's a great example of where he, leaned in to to what he truly is and not trying to be somebody else just like the dictionary folks they that was that was their nature and that was never written down anywhere you know go do this exact thing they figured that out by sort of embracing themselves but the other thing that came to mind was it seemed like it could be almost a litmus test if somebody you're let's say you're proposing an idea you're a marketer and you uh, the management or whatever says but no one is doing that that for me is like, hey, maybe we're on to something. Um, another example would be the, uh, the 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 venture capitalists. Could you tell that story? Uh, the one I worked for, or first round capital? Oh, uh, first round capital in uh, San Francisco. Sure, no problem. So uh, there's a woman by the name of Camille Ricketts who was hired to be the head of content and marketing at, at First Round, which invests like super early on in a tech startup's life. So they've invested in big companies you've heard of, like Blue Apron and Uber, but you know I think Warby Parker and Square and a few more. But initially, these companies are not known, and so you know they they are really at the front lines of of tech startup and their evolution. And when they hired Camille, she faced a really interesting challenge. Unlike a lot of entrepreneurs or solo freelancers like Scott, Camille was like asked to launch a blog among, I think, something like 89 to 100 different existing competitor blogs. Pretty crowded field. Yeah. There's actually a website in New York called CB Insights that published the periodic table of venture capital blogs just to help people make sense of it. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, so it, So Camille was asked to do something we often face, which is like lots of competition, 
hey boss or, or from the boss hey marketer we need our version of that yeah go go do that content thing yeah right that i read about on the in flight magazine yeah oh my goodness yeah it's like what well, so so they you know sent a bunch of blog but we need a blog too well, it's like oh my gosh what can i do and camille's is a story of how you know what you think you need is total creative freedom you need something concocted that's brand new and big but what she actually did was she looked at her existing contacts and is like, well, I have I have no writers. I have very little budget. I have like three months in this new job to prove my worth. She had all these constraints. Mm-hmm. And rather than reject them or fight against them or be like, well, I can't until I get more budget, she thought to herself, well, what can I do within this box? You know, she embraced the walls of the box and they were abundantly clear for her. As studies show, that yields greater creativity when you know your constraints and embrace them. And so instead of trying to write all these crazy essays or viral pieces or, you know, just copy everybody in their blog posts, she decided to look at what did first round capitals investors do offline that entrepreneurs, their audience loved. And it was introducing entrepreneurs to other entrepreneurs or practitioners. It wasn't the wisdom gifted from the investors. But that's how other blogs looked. It was VCs writing about their perspective. So Camille thought, okay, well, let's start there. One constraint is we should be an operator helping other operator type blog. And then she thought, well, how do I create that content? I don't have writers. I don't have a budget, et cetera. So she just started going in her backyard in San Francisco to all these events and finding the most popular speeches where an operator was teaching other operators, looking for the most questions, looking for the longest lines. And she would just transcribe the speeches and publish articles. And all she was looking for wasn't like final success. She just wanted signal that she was on the path towards it, which is what I call true believers, a small number of people reacting in a big way, the resonance piece of our job, not reach. And she held those things up to her bosses and slowly got more resources. So from from her and her alone, she got freelance budget. From the freelance budget, she got a full-time budget. So slowly by slowly, she moved from no blog to this little transcribed blog that had a firm angle that was different to now, if you fast forward to today, First Round Capital has like the strongest brand in VC, which is crucial because every VC sells the same thing, money. You know, and it didn't happen overnight. She didn't succeed because she had permission to be creative. She didn't have creative freedom. She had constraints and actually investigated what can I do to be creative within those constraints, which again, if you look at the science of creativity, aligns with how idea generation actually works. Yeah, so it was interesting because the way you described it, with a little bit of thought and not wanting to do exactly what others were doing, which I think... Uh, there, there probably might have been stakeholders in her organization that would have said, yes, yes, do, do what the others are doing. She pretty quickly found a gaping hole in what all those 89 blog, uh, other blogs were doing. And she said, oh, let's, you know, let's, let's do this instead. And it was enormously helpful. And again, it wasn't something that was in a, in a recipe uh, of uh, how, how to go forth and do this. Speaking of recipes, can you talk about the, the cook and chef analogy? Ah, this is one of my favorite analogies, again, back to my English degree, I suppose. Um, This comes from somebody else I spoke to for the book, a guy by the name of Tim Urban, who writes an unbelievable blog called Wait But Why. Cannot recommend this guy's writing enough, Wait But Why. It's not a marketing blog, but it is amazing. It's entertaining and smart all at the same time, which I appreciate. Uh, So Tim and I were talking about this idea of 
what we're really driving towards in the book is first principles, first principle thinking. You cut through the conventional layer and you actually reach that foundation of what's really going on. Why is the world this way? Or why did the thing work? Not just what works, but why did it work? And how do I then use that insight? Or what is my customer actually after? They're not buying a better pillow. They're buying a better night's sleep, et cetera. First principle thinking. And he uses this analogy of the cook and the chef. And it's actually this wonderful article on his blog that I I encourage people to check out, The Cook and the Chef. And it was mostly centered around how Elon Musk makes decisions, but he used that as a proxy to zoom out for how we all make decisions. He talks about, you know, what cooks do is they reason through analogy. They need the recipe and there's gradations. So some people need the recipe and follow it to a T. Some people have a recipe and they kind of remix a little bit here and there and add their own spin on it. But the difference between a cook and a chef is a chef starts with the raw ingredients. They look at the, not the, you know, how to make a pizza, but they're like, well, I have some salt and flour and tomato and yeast and water. And they're like, what could I create from there? And it's an amazingly eye-opening approach to how most of us tend to run our marketing, where most of us are reasoning through analogy instead of first principles. And uh, one of my favorite stories about somebody who reasons through first principles is this guy um, named Paul Butler. So Paul Butler works for an organization called rare.org, which saves environment or saves species that are in danger of extinction. And instead of writing an essay to the government or demanding people change or trying to punish people for killing off a species, he was working on the island of St. Lucia years ago. And to save a parrot, he created a mascot. It was like, what? A mascot? Mm-hmm. And, he started and dancing a, and around his in his mascot. It was a costume. He handed it out in collateral and t-shirts. He created a symbol of national pride and the symbol was the species he was trying to save because when you reason from first principles, people don't like being ordered what to do. However, they might be inspired to act based on an emotion that they feel is positive. And everybody who looked at what he did there thought it was crazy or innovative, but he would say, well, to me, it was really logical. I just started in a fundamental place that you lacked. He started with the understanding that people are emotional, whereas most scientists start with this rational approach. Like, here's the science, here's the data, and they just hand out facts. Mm -hmm. So he didn't do anything radical to him. He just had a first principle. People are emotional. What if we associate saving the species with a positive emotion like national pride instead of a fear that this species is going to die off or a demand that you stop your behavior of killing them or capturing them or eating them. So, you know, I think what first principle thinking does, what, what thinking like a chef does is it turns all these innovative ideas or creative ideas into something rather logical to you. And it's only crazy from the outside looking in because all you know is the analogy or the best practice. That's the power of first principles. Yeah. And it also brought to mind for people who are listening to this of, am I a marketing cook? Or am I a marketing chef? And to me, that meant, you know, am I am I thinking about our own situation, uh, you know, maybe our audience and our own organization and the things we have, or are we trying to do something, you know, right off of a, a HubSpot tip sheet, for instance, or, uh, you know, some, some other place that has great marketing advice? Uh, it seemed like that was a helpful thing for people to talk about. But I want to go back to... The story of this person you were talking about in chapter two, this Uncle DC guy, and I'm just reading this first chapter and I'm thinking, holy cow, this guy, who is this guy? And then you explain that Uncle DC is none other than David Cancel. <laughs> 
and uh, who used to work at HubSpot when you were there, and he's actually going to be on the podcast. We're going to be I'm going to be interviewing him about his new book, uh, Conversational Marketing. And I can remember one day meeting him at HubSpot, and I was just thinking, wow, this. I was not aware of this side of him. He just seemed like a very, very nice, uh, very humble guy. But he's now, he went on to uh, start yet another company uh, called Drift, which a lot of marketers uh, probably know about or they should certainly uh, visit them. But talk about the story of uh, what David did, where he broke the wheel and it really kind of frightened his. Chief Marketing Officer uh, Dave Gearhart. Yeah. yeah, so so DC Uncle DC is a lot of people call him. Uh, who I met in Boston, and uh, we worked together briefly. And he he called up Dave Gearhart. I think it was the company back then was maybe 15, 20 people. Drift, and uh, he said, you know, I want you to remove every single lead generation form on the website. What? Which in yeah, in B two B marketing, that is. I, I forget I, again with the analogies. I think it's like it's like cutting off your left leg and then being asked to continue running, right? right? Like that's what it feels like for a lot of B two B marketers. Like remove the lead gen forms, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know he had a re- he had rational first principle insight based reasons for doing that. He was like you know look, he looked back on marketing and where it had come out of, and it was like all about gaming the system and get rich quick schemes instead of adding value, which would then lead to somebody connecting with you. It was demanding that they connect with you first in exchange for value. It was almost a skittish way to operate where it's like, I don't trust that this ebook will prompt action. I'm going to ask for the action up front. And it's then what you're doing is you're not really practicing content marketing. You're advertising content. You're, you're an advertiser. It's the landing page doing the work, not the ebook um, as one example. And so he decided we're going to rip out all these lead gen forms. And Dave thought he was crazy. But then the more he thought about it, it was like, do you like that experience when you land on another website and you're like super excited? You read an awesome article about Facebook advertising and you see a little banner that's like click here for our guide to go deeper and you click it and it says it's a free guide, but it's really not. You're not paying money, but you're paying your first, your last name, uh, your social security number, your marketing budget, <laughs> your wife's social security number, mm-hmm. your firstborn son. Like you, it's ridiculous what we're doing to people. It's bait and switch awfulness. and yet. When you talk to a lot of marketers, they kind of shrug. They're like, meh, it's what works. Or meh, they said it worked. Everybody does it. Yeah. But we all hate it. If you talk to, I, this is what drove me nuts about working in, in SaaS uh, for marketing vendors. It's like we would do things that we ourselves admitted to in, in the quiet moments or the, you know, at the bar moments. We'd admit, yeah, we really don't like that ourselves. Yeah. So why are we doing it to people? Because of leads. But what are leads? They're people. <laughs> so so DC was willing to look at his own observation of the world, talk to enough of his customers and his team to realize, look, no one actually likes this. So if they don't like that, then what is a better route to generate the result we want, the leads we want? It's to actually honor not the letter of the law, but the spirit. We have to add actual value first to trigger the action. And they not only removed their forms, but wrote a blog post about it. And it became this mini movement that really buoyed the early days of this company. And they still don't have any forced forms on their website, but they also sparked this, this community of ours to write about Drift and interview Drift and, and, and take action just like Drift. It became like they owned the conversation in a really powerful way. So, um, and the question I pose in the book is, So why is he somebody who looks at the world and he sees an obvious insight like that and he acts on it, whereas we see an obvious insight like that too, 
And we think, well, yeah, but that's too simple. The answer must be embedded in some complex marketing theorem or some expert. We're the pipe bumping into the to the glass. Well, there you go. I mean, that's why this is one of the early stories in the book that and it leads us into Pike syndrome as the reason why. And and so DC is someone who, together with his team, is pushing for a team built not on best practices, but built on lifelong learning and questioning best practices because he's acutely aware of he might not know the phrase, but he's acutely aware of Pike syndrome. Yeah. So that that whole story in the book, it just seemed like such marketing boldness and bravery. And it's working. Now, I do want to say that he credited all of their com- his, his company's willingness to get closer to the customer and to base their decisions on what they learn, regardless of the conventional approach. And I just, I just marked that. I circled it twice because it was all about getting closer <laughs> to the customer, thinking more about them. And uh, in the book, you also talk about how folks that are spending more time thinking about their customer than their competition usually do well. So that's another little tip there. But Jay, let me ask you something. Do you have any tattoos? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, neither do I, but I was thinking about getting one. And uh, so when I was reading on uh, page 223, uh, I, I, might, I, might, I might get this tattooed on my body. When we pay more attention to the customer than to the competition, the customer pays more attention to us. I don't know. I, I got to think about it. Maybe the listeners can tell me uh, if there's some other tattoo I should get. But I just thought that that was okay. Maybe I won't get the tattoo, but maybe that should be engraved <laughs> in stone. Getting closer to the customer, they're going to pay more attention to you. I just thought that was. It's it's very simple to say, but yet it's so difficult for companies to do. I, it blows my. I've spent the last not just for the book. The book pulled a lot of stories from my podcast, Unthinkable. I've spent three straight years working on that show and telling stories. You know, the signal for if it's a good fit for my show is their work seems crazy until you hear their side of it. And the reason it seems crazy is from the outside looking in, you possess the conventional wisdom, or you reason from analogy again back to the cook and chef. But when you talk to them, they're like, "Here's why I made the decision. Here's what I know to be true about my team." Or here's what I know to be true about the customer, the people I aim to serve. And I just made decisions based on that. And you know what? If needed and I hit a snag, I can go get a checklist of how to operate on LinkedIn and use their advertising product or how to write a more effective blog post or how to launch a podcast with the technology that is available to us. But they're only turning to these best practices, these trends, et cetera, if they feel that they can't actually find a way forward by first understanding their context. And so it's a very rare thing for them. And to me, like, that's why we exist. We don't exist to look at the competition and copy them. We don't exist to maximize stakeholder, shareholder value, or to, you know, create yet another X. We're seeing this in podcasts. It's like, you know, check out our other podcast. It's, uh, it's the, we also have a podcast podcast. It's like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? You know, we exist for one reason, which is to serve the customer and everything else gets better, including the decisions we make. But we think that's too simplistic. We think there's no, we, we've gotten in DC's words, we've gotten too clever for our own good, where we think it's about this complex, unique, big idea. And once we learn that, we're done learning. The, you know, the only thing that's true is that the people who are really comfortable asking good questions seem to do better work than the people who obsess over everybody else's answers. You know, I, I think we all want the same thing, which is to do exceptional work. And I don't think exceptional work happens by answers others give us. I think it happens by the questions we ask ourselves. 
And the questions that people bring up in meetings, and it just occurred to me that people who do read this and apply some of this, these uh, techniques that you're describing and, and what others have done, the people you work with are going to think you're smart <laughs> because you're, you're clearly thinking and you're bringing these uh, issues up. I think people will start to want to include you in more meetings. It seemed like one of the keys to get marketing more a place at the table. I would love if that happened. And I think, uh, you know, there's a number of ways to phrase it, putting strategy before tactics, something marketers struggle with. Uh, Another way to look at it is, you know, actually, when when you talk about convincing other people, it's doing so in a way that they understand instead of being a rebel. Because what I'm not saying here is ignore best practices. I'm not saying reject everything you're doing and start from scratch or be a rebel. I think I might be saying the most practical and obvious thing in the world, which is instead of copying someone else or clinging to the convention, think for yourself. And the missing piece is we don't really have a practical system for that. And so hopefully by providing that in the book, I can help more marketers get that seat at the table because it's not about the big idea, the one-off creativity, or about rejecting something that others feel safe in. It's actually about being a leader people want to follow. Right. And we're not saying get rid of your forms. I mean, that worked for for uh, David's business. And uh, I, I put that in the book. That's yes, so important. I very put clear. that in the book. I said, the point is not to remove your forms like DC and drift. <laughs> the point is to look at the customer. The point isn't to, you know, here's really what the punchline was, if I remember correctly. It's, you know, the point isn't to copy the tactics of the people you admire. The point is to possess the same self-awareness and situational awareness that they do. Yes, yes. Well, last question I want to ask about the book, and that is one that uh, makes me want to go out and uh, buy a, a, a little monkey to put on my desk. Uh, can you explain the, what the role of the what you call the instant gratification monkey plays in uh, keeping us from breaking the wheel? <laughs> so that is a Tim Urban concept. I need to give credit where credit yes, is due. Yes. So, and I think uh, the panic monster was another one. Yes. So, you know, Tim Urban talks a lot about why we procrastinate. He's got a wonderful TED talk about that too. And uh, he focuses mostly on life things. You know, why are you not, uh, you know, cleaning up after yourself? You're procrastinating, whatever. But I think this idea of instant gratification has followed us into work. And he uses an analogy of like, there is a like rational decision maker at the helm of your brain. But every so often this instant gratification monkey takes the wheel and it's like, this is actually not a good time to be productive. We're going to binge watch all these YouTube videos. (laughs) It was very funny in the book how you described it because you clearly had uh, read my mind (laughs) going down all these different rabbit holes. And yeah, so Tim, Tim is, you know, he's an amazing thinker and a great creator of metaphors. And in this case, the instant gratification monkey becomes a real problem, not just in, in life situations, but I think in, you know, what we're talking about, which is in marketing. Uh, we want the spike in our work. We focus our creativity not on consistent operation, but on random acts of creativity, you know, in, in which case we devolve into finding shortcuts and best practices, et cetera. And so you have this instant gratification monkey and the way to combat it is what Tim calls the, there's only one thing that the monkey is scared of. It's not your rational decision maker. It's the panic monster, a third party living in your brain, the panic monster. And in his case, the panic monster is about a looming deadline. But I actually think, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who thinks a lot about the meaning we find in our work. And, and I think if, if push comes to shove, even the most rational among us in marketing, we all look for meaning in our careers. And I think the panic monster comes into play for us specifically when you think about the fact that you get one life and therefore you get one career. And while there might not be a deadline on every project you work on, 
while you might make trade-offs in the near term to be like, yeah, I'm just going to copy what we used to do or what someone else says we should do because reasons. You know, I think the panic monster comes into play when you realize there is a deadline on all of this. You only get to do this once. So you may as well spend it doing something that feels meaningful and fulfills not only you, but the audience you aim to serve, right? And so we're so obsessed with instant gratification that we're actually defeating our goals of driving results. We're doing commodity work. There's so much crap in the marketing world spinning out into the industry. And I think it's a direct result of this endless cycle that we get trapped on this wheel. And uh, to, to paraphrase Daenerys, we, we don't need to find a way to succeed on it. We don't need to stop the wheel. We, we have to break that wheel. Yeah. Well, it, it's a it's a great analogy and doggone it. I'm more sensitized to that little monkey trying to take things away. So, Jay, if readers took only one thing away from your book, what would you hope it would be? The ability to walk into any scenario and make the best possible decision for you more quickly. Well said. Well said. And it brought to mind, uh, if somebody were to read your book and then meet you at one of your many speaking engagements and say, so we should get rid of the forms on our website? (laughs) It seems like you would say, help me out here. Did you read beyond that? Did you read the book? <laughs> Did you read the next paragraph? Literally the next paragraph. Yes. You know, I, it, it's funny. It's the, there's one hard truth to accept, but if you accept it, this book makes a lot more sense. Accept that every answer is it depends. And what we're exploring in the book is, well, what does it depend on? Right? Like the, what does it, it depends on you. It depends on your scenario. It depends on your customers, your resources. Like it depends. So how do you make decisions if every decision has this backdrop of like, well, it depends. Yeah. You know, Jay, at the beginning of the book, you mentioned that uh, one of your talks that you give, you ask people something about, do you want to be a one or a, or a 10? And I was wondering if you could explain that quickly, because when some marketer or, or, or person is uh, at their company and the, the, they're given the direction, do, do what that company's doing, it almost seemed like they could come back with this, this same analogy. A friend of mine, and, and I think yours too, Scott Monty, uh, in the marketing world, great speaker and marketing mind, best newsletter, the full Monty. Um, Scott likes to say, he talks about his, his, his past life working in a, a big corporation or as a consultant, I believe in this case. And he was talking to uh, one of his clients and he said, look, they were having a hard time getting on board with anything less or anything other than copying the competition, this client. Uh-huh. And he said to him point blank, kind of a last Hail Mary attempt to get him on board with a new idea. He was like, do you want to read a case study? Or do you want to be a case study? <laughs> and the client, the client said to him, "We want to read a case study." Oh! <laughs> so I think people listening have a choice. If you work for people, for executives, I almost said an organization, but all an organization is is people. If you work for people that want to read a case study, this book is probably not for you, unless you're trying to push those people and believe you can. But this book is for people who want to be a case study. Who, who answer that question, I don't want to be a 5 out of 10 because that's average. I want to be a 10 out of 10. I want to keep improving. I want to do something exceptional and not commodity. Like That, to me, is a conversation we have to have more often in the business world and certainly in the marketing world, is what does that actually take to bridge that seemingly unthinkable gap? Right. So it seems like somebody could say, well, okay, do, do you want to be a 5 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10? Because if you if we copy what everyone else is doing, we are guaranteed uh, a five out of five. That, and that w- then invites the discussion of, oh, okay, so maybe we shouldn't be slavishly copying what, what everyone else is doing. Of course, that may be an indicator of other more fundamental problems, uh, and marketers should always keep their resumes updated. But Jay <laughs> Akunzo, what books 
have inspired your work and career? Oh my goodness. So I, I spent a significant portion of my time building documentary series in audio and video form for brands. And so there's a lot of storytelling I'm trying to do in the workplace with B2B companies and the ability to pull out a meaningful story that changes how you see the world from a seemingly mundane moment in someone else's day. That is a skill that I admire and, and want to work at. And nobody in history in my mind has done that better than Anthony Bourdain. And so his his first book, or, or I don't know if it was actually his first book, but the first book people uh, really read was Kitchen Confidential. And so that to me is, that transformed my career is reading that years ago and then following his career um, until it's very un untimely end, uh, unfortunately. But so I'd, I'd say Kitchen Confidential. And then on a more playful note, I think any collection of Cal Calvin and Hobbes comics, because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's about economical use of space and words to trigger a big meaning and emotion. And then really practically Out on the Wire, which might be a new book for some people, but Out on the Wire is is actually written like a comic, but it's this um, this woman followed... Ira Glass and Jad Abumrad from Radiolab and all these these famous and, and really beautiful storytellers from public radio and podcasting, she followed them for quite some time and then wrote about how they operate, like their process. So Out on the Wire has transformed my audio storytelling in particular. Oh, terrific. Well, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, I think, you know, 2019 for me is about dipping into what I'd call slow media more fully, getting out of the feed, th things that have withstood the test of time, even if it's just a few years of time, um, and things that are heavy up on story instead of advice. So I'm rereading Kitchen Confidential, and actually, at the end of the year, sometime in the fall, there's a biography of Bourdain from his longtime assistant coming out, so I can't wait for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I'd like to explore more biographies. Like I'm fascinated by how athletes and comedians construct their careers and approach, you know, their craftspeople. Um, so Steve Martin's Born Standing Up is on my list. Mm. Um, then there's a few big idea business books I have like sitting on my shelf I'm trying to get through. So like I still haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, mm -hmm. uh, Originals by Adam Grant. And, you know, I know upcoming is going to be uh, a friend of ours, Andrew Davis, is writing a book called The Loyalty Loop, which I can't re wait to read that either. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, I know he's been doing a lot of videos associated with that, and he, he was on the podcast as well about his book, Town Inc., which was just a, a fascinating book. So, Jay, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? jayacunzo.com slash book has a ton of behind the scenes stuff. I'm very kind of transparent and open, but jayacunzo.com slash book. And then if you want to reach out to me, I'm jay at unthinkablemedia.com. Terrific. Well, we'll include links to uh, your site, uh, all the ways to reach you, your LinkedIn profile, Twitter handle, and all the books that you've mentioned on this episode in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com just to make it easy for all the listeners. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Break the Wheel, Question Best Practices, Hone Your Intuition, and Do Your Best Work. The author is Jay Akunzo. Jay, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'll talk to you soon. 
And that closes the book on episode 214 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes, marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist, to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Guy Kawasaki back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong. I hope this isn't your last book. It, oh, no, very much won't be. And thank you for saying that, by the way. That, that implied compliment means a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs>